So our, our subject that we're going to consider is, is there an unforgivable sin or as you can um, otherwise word it, is there an unpardonable sin? Now, um, this is a question that has really vexed brothers and sisters, young people uh, forever in terms of um, those that would like to follow after Christ and would like to be in his kingdom. It's a subject that right since the beginning of Christadelphian times has really troubled people and perhaps you might be one of those. I'm going to be quoting from a number of different um, uh, sources, many of which are from old Christadelphian writings, from the Christadelphian magazine, um, uh, from various books and publications, and we'll be making comments, of course, uh, on quite a few Bible verses. Um, but the, um, I hope that the, uh, the references to the old Christadelphian uh, magazines and articles and letters to the editor and things will just be helpful to show that this, has been a, this is a subject that people have been grappling with, uh, brothers and sisters have been grappling with since the very beginning of our, um, of our movement. Back in 2008, um, Brother Sid Levette, who would be known to many of you, uh, Brother Sid uh, from Melbourne, was writing an article in the Christadelphian. It wasn't specifically about this subject of the unforgivable sin, but it was a, 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 um, an article about uh, bearing burdens and burdens that people might um, might have in life. And he talked and he made this little comment in that article. He said, "A weight of a different nature carried by some is that of a perceived unforgivable sin. This can be a huge burden for some to carry, often including an opinion." that they are unworthy to partake of the emblems. Now, I wonder, brothers and sisters, if you've ever felt so despondent about your failings as a servant of Jesus Christ that you feel that it would be better if you just gave up, that you're not good enough, that God couldn't possibly have you in your kingdom because you're just too pathetically weak and you keep on committing sins, perhaps the same sins over and over again. And perhaps you've dwelt on, on, on that uncertainty about your future so much that you've started to cement it in your mind because rattling around inside the back of your head are some, some Bible passages that talk about the unforgivable sin. And the more time goes on, the more you have convinced yourself that you have probably committed exactly that the unforgivable or the unpardonable sin. Back in 1962, Brother Dudley Fifield, uh, a well-known Christophian writer, also in uh, the magazine, uh, made this comment. He said, at a recent youth weekend, a questioner asked what advice he could give to a young brother who believed that he had committed an unforgivable sin and was too ashamed to approach an elder brother for help and guidance. And so he goes on and makes the comment, it is a dreadful thing that any brother or sister should be so filled with despair because of sin that they feel themselves to be beyond the power of God's mercy. And so he goes on to write um, this particular article, and we will quote, I think, uh, from that at least once more uh, during the course of our evening. But I wonder, brothers and sisters, young people, have you ever shared this young brother's despair? Perhaps you have tortured yourself with the belief that your life is so inadequate that you've fallen into this very condemnation. Perhaps you feel so ashamed of sins past and present that you just can't possibly imagine how God could forgive you. 
particularly because you keep on failing in the same way with the same sin day after day and year after year. Have you ever felt like that? I would like to, if I was a betting man, I'd say that many in the audience tonight uh, have felt that way at some stage in their life. Where would we get the idea that there is such a thing as an unforgivable sin? Well, this is where we would get it, right here on your screen now. What we have here is a list of passages that might make you arrive at exactly that conclusion that it is possible to sin an unforgivable sin. Now, I, I, in some ways, I apologise because it's a very busy slide, but I wanted to put all of the passages up there on the one slide for you at the same time because what you have there is maybe not comprehensive, but almost all of the, the really significant passages that might make one um, believe that it is possible for us to commit an unforgivable sin. And we're going to work our way through these um, one by one uh, a little bit later on, but just very quickly, um, and, and if you haven't got your Bibles, uh, please get them out. You will need your Bibles tonight because we're going to be working through all these passages and it would be a good opportunity later on if you wanted to, to do a little Bible marking and uh, link some of these passages and make some, make some notes. We're not going to do it specifically as a Bible marking exercise tonight, but um, if, you, if this is a, a subject that is dear to your heart and something that has troubled you, then it might be worthwhile just really cementing it in your mind and in your margin. The primary... Uh, passage that would lead us to uh, possibly think that we can commit an unfor unforgivable sin is that one at the top of the screen, 1 John chapter 5 and verses 16 and 17, where he says that there is a sin unto death. And we're going to spend a little time looking at that. That's really our primary passage uh, from which most of the others will stem. But just very quickly looking at them, in Galatians 5, Paul says, he lists a whole bunch of um, sins in, uh, in that uh, verse, in verse 19, and he says, those that do these things shall not inherit the kingdom. And it's, you could think, well, is he saying that if we've committed those, one of those sins once, does that mean that we're not going to inherit the kingdom? Hebrews 10, and there are, in fact, three passages, as you'll see there in, in the book of Hebrews, um, there's, in those three passages, um, we see that Paul, I believe that Paul was the author of Hebrews. He talks about that in chapter 10, verse of all, we've got if someone sins willfully after they have, um, after they have uh, come to a knowledge of the truth, there is no more sacrifice for sins for them and a certain fearful looking for of judgment. Well, who, who of us haven't sinned willfully after we've come to a knowledge of the truth? So, wow, that's a scary passage when taken on its own have a look at Hebrews 6 and he says that there is a class of people for whom it is impossible for those who were once enlightened he says it's impossible for those if they fall away to be um, to renew them again unto repentance impossible that's a really strong word and that might make us feel rather uh, anxious as well Hebrews chapter 12 is another one slightly different context but he's talking about the example of Esau who when he was rejected, he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. And you might think, well, we've, we've gone to, to God in prayer in tears, perhaps. Isn't he going to forgive us? 
Ephesians chapter 5, a list of rather um, unsavoury sins, but some of them, you know, perhaps we might consider to be uh, not so um, uh, not so bad, inverted commas, you know, foolish talking or jesting. But, um, uh, and then he goes on to say that for this know that no, and then he lists a, a bunch of other sins. He says, for this know that people who commit these sins, none of them, they don't have any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So again, a bit of a troubling passage. Second Peter chapter 2, if if someone has known the, um, the the gospel and then they've become entangled again in the in the uh, in the sins of the world, it's better that they had not even known the way in the first place. Jude chapter one, uh, uh, it, it, it describes uh, people there who have known the gospel, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Ezekiel chapter eighteen, when the righteous turns from his righteousness. Shall he live? Well, it's a rhetoric question, a rhetorical question. Shall he live? No, he's not going to live if the righteous has turned away from his righteousness. Three passages in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah, and I believe that Brother Greg um, uh, was talking about Jeremiah this morning. Not sure if he uh, mentioned this, but because of the wickedness of the uh, people of Judah, Jeremiah is specifically told by God, don't pray for this people. I'm not going to hear. They're not able to be forgiven. Well, are we in that category of those that can't be forgiven? Should we not be uh, prayed for by our brothers and sisters? Are we so wicked? Um, and uh, in the one in Jeremiah 15, even though Moses and Samuel might intercede, my mind can't be made, uh, can't be toward them. Then we've got the passages in, in the New Testament, Matthew uh, chapter 12 and Mark chapter 3, which talk about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and that that could not be forgiven, and that every idle word in uh, that's also in Matthew twelve, every idle word should should be condemned. Now, Brother uh, Steve uh, talked a little bit about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit last uh, week, and we're going to pick up on that because that's a really important one. So, the the very first passage up there, First John chapter five, and those last passages are probably the most important. We're going to work our way through those in a moment. And you will need your Bible um, for those. But before we get into that uh, proper, we're just going to make a little digression. And I think it's an important digression to make. We're going to have a bit of a look at the Roman Catholic model of sin because this, I believe, is where a lot of our problems in understanding uh, whether it's possible to commit an unforgivable sin today, this is where a lot of our problems have stemmed from. As far as the Roman Catholics are concerned, there are two different categories of sin, two different classes of sin. And uh, in the following slides, we have got uh, quotes from um, uh, certified uh, Catholic sources. So I'm not making this up, nor am I, I, I don't believe that I am misrepresenting uh, their position on this. Um, so the first quote is, all sin is an, is an offence against God and a rejection of his perfect love and justice. Yet, they say, and this is what the Catholics are saying, yet Jesus makes a distinction between two types, of, two types of sin. We call the most serious and grave sins, <coughs> pardon me, mortal sins. And this is their term, a mortal sin. Well, where did this, 
where did this actually come from, this idea of the uh, or the idea that there was such a thing as a mortal sin, a sin that could not be forgiven? Well, first of all, let's have a look at what uh, these mortal sins might be. And the, under the Roman Catholic model of sin, um, from sin to be mortal, that is unforgivable, something that puts you outside the scope of forgiveness, that you would be excommunicated from in terms of um, uh, you would be excommunicated from the Catholic Church, there are three conditions that have to be met. The first is that it has to be a sin of a grave matter. So it's got to be a bad one. And the, the Roman Catholics have got the definition of what's a bad one and not such a bad one. Second one, it has to be committed with full knowledge of the sinner. And thirdly, with deliberate consent of the sinner. Now, you might think, well, there's, what's the difference between two and three? And there is a bit of overlap there, but uh, you can see that there is also um, areas where they are a little different from one another. But that's what their definition of a mortal sin is. Now, let's have a look, a look at a couple of examples. First one, uh, and again, uh, apologies for it being so busy, but I think because you've got the uh, screen right in front of you, you should be able to uh, follow along with me fairly, uh, fairly easily. They go through all the Ten Commandments and they give examples of what a grave sin, which would then become a mortal sin if it fulfills all three criteria, um, uh, of, uh, gives some examples of that. So one is, um, for the Fifth Commandment, murder. Direct, uh, and I find this really quite fascinating, direct and intentional killing is gravely sinful. And there's a quote from... And that CCC that you see a number of times up there is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And so this is their list of um, beliefs and practices. Um, so direct and intentional killing is gravely sinful. It's a sin that cries to heaven for vengeance, much like the murder of Abel at the hands of Cain. Indirect homicide can also be of a grave nature, such as refusing to help a person in danger. However... I find this interesting. The church teaches that self-defence is permissible for the preservation of one's life. If the attacker is mortally wounded or killed, then the death of the attacker is not a sin. Those who use unnecessary aggression in self-defence can sin mortally if the attacker is killed or gravely injured. So you can see it all starts to get a little bit, uh, a little bit um, hairy, a little bit confusing. This next one also is really interesting. Abortion. Human life begins at conception in the mother's womb. For God tells us, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. A quote from Jeremiah 1 verse 5. Abortion, uh, the Catholics say, is therefore murder. The oldest Christian book, and this is according to the Catholics, don't get too agitated about this, the oldest Christian book beside parts of the Bible is the Didache, a book composed supposedly by the 12 apostles or their disciples. The Didache uh, uh, proclaims the ancient teaching of the Catholic Church. Well, that's true. But what that says is, you shall not kill the embryo by abortion and shall not cause the newborn to perish. All Catholics who procure a completed abortion or participate in execution of an abortion are automatically excommunicated from the Catholic Church. So you have committed a mortal sin if you um, have done that. Now, interestingly, why do, I, why do I make a point of that? Well, a few weeks ago, reading through the paper when I was having my morning coffee back in the days um, when I did go to work, um, the, uh, there was this little comment uh, about um, the fact that uh, the current president of the United States of America, Mr Joe Biden, is a very staunch Catholic. But 
Mr Biden also supports the landmark 1973 US Supreme Court decision affirming a woman's right to an abortion. Therefore, that puts him at odds with the conservative elements of the Catholic Church. Um, and in fact, if you look at the end of the little article there, um, in 2019, a priest at a Catholic church in South Carolina refused Holy Communion to Mr. Biden because of his stance on abortion. So you can see they take it very seriously to the point where um, even um, Mr. Biden uh, might have committed a mortal sin as far as the Catholic Church is concerned. Another example um, from the third commandment is remember the, is the one about remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Deliberate failure of the Sunday obligation, the Christian Sunday, the Lord's Day, they say, celebrates the new life of the world born in Christ's resurrection. All humans have a duty to praise God and give him thanks. Thus, all Christians are bound to participate in the Mass and must partake of the Eucharist at least on holy days of obligation. Deliberate failure to do this constitutes a grave sin. So therefore, if you don't take the Eucharist, if you don't go to Mass, if you don't take the wafer and the wine, um, or rather not the wine, just the wafer because I think the priest drinks the wine, doesn't he? But deliberate failure to do this constitutes a grave sin. And so if you continue to do that uh, willingly and with knowledge, of course, then you have probably committed a mortal sin. So we get to the nub of it because it all centres around 1 John chapter 5, as we've, as we've indicated. The first condition that a mortal sin is a grave matter means that certain premeditated offences against God are more severe than others. We know that some sins are graver than others. I'm not quite sure how they know that. It's graver sin to murder someone than to lie to someone. I'm not sure that that's really the teaching of Christ, but anyway. John tells us, if any sees his brother sinning, and so he, they quote from 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, thus they say St John distinguishes between mortal and venial sin. So this so-called venial sin is the sin that does isn't a sin unto death. So if you're struggling with this, let me try and give you a diagrammatic representation, and this is, again, from a certified Catholic um, uh, source. On the far left, you see the ideal state. You are in a state of grace with God. You are completely within, in the ambit of God's um, salvation, as it were. But if you've committed a venial sin, that is a slightly less uh, significant sin, then you've sort of pushed yourself out. You're still within the grasp of God and he can drag you back in. He can draw you back in if you confess your sins, if you go to the confessional box, if you pay your penance or whatever it might be that is required, then you're okay and God will drag you back in. But if you've committed a mortal sin, you are outside the scope of salvation and you will go to hell or um, similar. And so here we have, a, a, this is my diagram of it, there's this degradation of, of, of the importance or the severity of sins and something like a white lie or even a fist fight is uh, considered to be a venial sin. I, I went to a site and it had a whole list of things. What's a venial sin? What's a mortal sin? And white lies and fistfights are um, specified as just being venial sins. But, of course, if your fistfight killed someone, um, then it becomes murder, and so that would have become a, um, a mortal sin. 
I love the quote at the top, even when we've not committed a mortal sin, we are still obliged to confess our sins at least once a year. Um, so uh, that, yeah, so you've got to go to the confessional or attend church at least once a year and confess your sins. Um, and so murder and abortion, failing to take the Eucharist, you've crossed the line. You've committed a mortal sin, if that is the case. So why do we go to all this uh, trouble of looking uh, at this Roman Catholic model? Well, the reason is because I asked the question, has the Roman Catholic model of sin infiltrated our own thinking? And I would suggest to you that it possibly has. Because if we have fallen into the trap of believing that it is possible for us to commit a single sin that would be unforgivable, then we have adopted a Roman Catholic model of, you know, of understanding sin. Right back in 1894, Brother Roberts, in one of the early uh, Christadelphians, had received a letter to the editor and uh, this um, particular um, troubled soul asks about this question of the unforgivable sin or the mortal sin. So Brother Robert says, it seems that the brethren with him have been exercised as to the old subject of mortal sin. That is the Catholic term, mortal sin or sin unto death, with the result of some going so far as to maintain that a single sin after baptism is fatal to a believer's prospects of eternal life. We see also um, coming on um, to 1961, Brother H.A. Whitaker also uh, wrote in the Christadelphian, uh, and he's referencing 1 John chapter 5, verse 16. Again, it's really our primary reference. It's the one that the Catholics um, uh, hang their uh, doctrine on, and it's the one that causes us most trouble as well. The words have puzzled many a reader, he says especially since they seem to have reference to an unforgivable sin, a sin by which its very nature must end in eternal rejection and perdition. So what does 1 John chapter 5, verse 16 mean? Let's turn to it. Get your Bibles out, please, um, and uh, turn to 1 John chapter 5 and verse 16. This is our premier uh, verse that we need to uh, get sorted out if any man verse 16 if any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death he shall ask and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death there is a sin unto death and i do not say that he shall pray for it so this is where the catholic doctrine of a venial sin and a mortal sin comes from is that what john is talking about Well, like with any Bible passage, it's really important to look at the context. And part of the context we see in verse 18. In verse 18, it says, Whosoever is born of God sins not. Now, that also seems difficult or absolute on the surface. I mean, <coughs> pardon me. Um, to say that a follower of God sins not, that seems impossible also. But what we need to be aware of is that the Greek, in which, uh, of course, this was originally written, the Greek here is written in the continuous sense. Now, what does that mean? Well, what that means is that the passage is really saying, and here's a paraphrase, whosoever is born of God 
does not go on sinning, meaning it is not the ongoing dominant force in their life. It is not their practised way of behaving. It is not what drives them in life. Whoever is born of God does not follow that way of life, is what he is saying. So this then makes sense, for example, of David's situation. Let's think about David. We'll come back to David a little later on. But he sinned very gravely in the matter of Bathsheba, didn't he? Um, at least three grave sins that come to mind are lying, murder and adultery. If there was any cluster of sins that might be described as sins unto death, then surely these would be the ones. And yet David was forgiven. Why? Why could David be forgiven? Why was David forgiven? Because he was repentant, truly repentant, and he turned himself away from this behaviour. It was not the dominant force in his life. It wasn't what drove him. It wasn't his normal pattern of behaviour. It was a lapse, a weakness in the face of him who was otherwise described as being one who sought after God's own heart. And so his sins unto death were no such thing because it wasn't his ongoing pattern of life. And so we read again, 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17, the sin unto death is talking about someone who practices sin. And we'll come back to that again in a moment in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. So that'll do for First John for the moment. We will um, hopefully get a fuller picture of it as we move through the other passages. Let's have a look at the, and we're going to work through every one of those, um, every one of those quotes that we uh, looked at that very busy uh, slide early on. So just be prepared to turn up all those passages. Um, we're going to look now at the three examples from the epistle to the Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 10, and 12. Let's deal with them in that order. Now, first of all, why are there three passages in the Hebrews that would be um, difficult in this sense? Well, what was the Hebrews about? What was the letter of the Hebrews about? Well, it was basically a, a letter written, I believe, by the Apostle Paul to convince the Jews that Jesus really was the high priest. He made the supreme sacrifice effective in saving men from sin and death. And the author, author repeatedly repeatedly warns his readers against reverting to Judaism, which rejected God's offer of salvation through the forgiveness of sins. So it was all about the forgiveness of sins through Christ. And so three times, these three passages that you see on the screen, three times Paul warns his Jewish readers that if they willfully refused to accept God's forgiveness, then they could not be forgiven. Let's look at all of these in turn. First of all, Hebrews chapter 6. Let's turn back to it. I find Hebrews 6 a, a really interesting one um, because it specifically uh, deals with a, a class of people, a group of people uh, that simply could not be forgiven because of their new pattern of behaviour. Let's have a look and see what it says. Hebrews chapter 6. And he uses very strong language. Verse 4, for it's impossible for those who were once enlightened. Now, have a look. So he says it's impossible for this group of people, um, if, and then jump to verse 6, if they fall away, 
to renew them again under repentance. So this group of people that's being spoken about in Hebrews 6, if they fall away, it's impossible for them to be renewed um, unto, unto repentance. So I think, oh, are we in that category? Well, have a look at what this class of people were. For those who were once enlightened, well, that's us, have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, what's he talking about here? Well, he goes on to explain. They were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Who's he talking about? He's talking about people in Paul's time who had received the Holy Spirit gifts. They had the Holy Spirit gift powers. And for those people, if they turned back and if they rejected Christ and if they said, well, these gifts that I've got, these powers that I have, they're not of Christ. They are, they are my powers. They are of some other source. For those people, if they fall away, it's impossible for them to be renewed unto, unto repentance because they crucified themselves uh, to themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. They rejected Christ. They ascribed the Holy Spirit powers to themselves. And so while ever they maintained that attitude, they were beyond the scope of repentance. So we can't fall into that category, really, of Hebrews 6, verses 4 to 6, because we don't have the Holy Spirit gift powers ourselves today anyway. So we might sort of breathe a sigh of relief when it comes to that particular passage. But let's have a look, come across a few pages to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I'm just finding Hebrews 10, verse 26, for if we sin willfully after that we've received a knowledge of the truth, then there remains no more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. Wow. Who of us haven't sinned willfully after we've come to a knowledge of the truth? This, this verse has caused much distress. I'm sure all of us have been anxious about this verse at some time. All of us have sinned willfully. We have made a deliberate choice to sin, whether it's something like what we might consider to be something very minor. We've deliberately set the cruise control five kilometres an hour over the speed limit. We know it and we've done it deliberately. Is that what he's talking about? If we've sinned willfully like that, that there is no more sacrifice for us and a fearful prospect of judgment. Well, no, brothers and sisters, it's not talking about individual acts like that. It's talking about a man or a woman who has full knowledge of the gospel and then spurns the forgiveness which God has offered, a willful turning your back on Christ in an ongoing sense. And that's the point. And that's what we're going to see in each of these passages that we look at. It's talking about it in an ongoing sense, not a one-off failure, an ongoing sense. So if we have turned our back on Christ, if we are sinning willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth in an ongoing sense, then we can't receive the benefit of Christ's sacrifice for sins. And finally, in Hebrews, we come across chapter 12. And this is the example of Esau, verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and 
therefore, thereby many be defiled, lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know that how afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Well, brothers and sisters, have you ever gone to God in prayer, in tears, for sins that you've committed? And then you read a passage like this and think, well, Esau couldn't be forgiven, even though he sought it with tears. What hope have I got? But why was Esau unredeemable? Because although he knew the promises of God, he cared nothing for God or his promises which were enshrined in the birthright. He sought repentance so that he could get Isaac to change his mind. Esau had no change in his own heart. He had no change in his own mind. He was, he was weeping for what he'd lost, not for the type of person that he was which was a profane man who had now had murder in his heart. He, his tears were not for his character. His tears were for what he had lost, and therefore he received no repentance. And so, therefore, we can see, this is Brother Fowler again, these three examples from the epistle to the Hebrews show us that the unredeemable state is a willful refusal to accept grace or forgiveness from God by those who fully understand God's offer of salvation. Such were the scribes who, seeing the power of the Holy Spirit to heal men, willfully refused to acknowledge Jesus Christ. So that's, of course, referencing forward, which we'll get to in a moment, of the Matthew and Mark um, references to blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and they refused to be healed themselves. That which is unforgivable is the willful and persistent, note those terms, willful and persistent refusal of men to recognise their sins and to accept God's forgiveness. That's what was unforgivable. All right. Let's come now to Galatians chapter 5. Now, of course, we could spend a lot of time on all of these passages, but I hope that we're just giving them enough time and enough emphasis to make uh, the consistent point that it's all about a way of life, not a one-off failure. Galatians chapter 5 and verses 19 and 20. Let's just read that. Well, we don't need to read it all. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a whole list of um, rather unsavoury sins there in verses 19 and 20 and 21. But verse 21 says, And such like of the which I tell you before, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So you might think, well, I looked through that list and, yeah, there's lots of them that I haven't committed, but, hmm, maybe hatred, maybe wrath, maybe maybe a heresy, you know, maybe I believe something in the past that I shouldn't. Does that mean that I can't be forgiven? Does that mean that... I shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, that's not what it's talking about. Again, brothers and sisters, notice the word, that little word, do, and this is something worth marking. It is the Greek word that you can see there, the word do, those that do such things, it is the Greek word prasso, which means to practice. That's where we get our English word practice from, from prasso. And as you can see in the definition, it is someone who practices these things. It is their way of life. 
look down towards the end of the definition, to exercise, practice to be busy, to carry on with. In other words, practice makes perfect. So people who practice these sins, who are aiming to hit the mark, and, and, and it's an interesting figure, isn't it? Because we know that the definition of sin, hamatia, is to miss the mark. So we're trying to we're trying to practice to be perfect. We're trying to practice to be sinless. But these people that are being spoken about in Galatians 5 who practice, who do such things, they're aiming to sin. That's their way of life. And surely, brothers and sisters, that is not us to practice such things. Now, here's a really important one. And let's come to 2 Peter chapter 2. And as you can see, I believe this to be a key passage. Why is it a key passage? Well, because it explains our difficult passage of 1 John chapter 5. You see, when we started off with 1 John chapter 5, it says, John notes that there is a sin which God will not forgive. And we think, well, what is that? You know, tell me what it is. He doesn't actually say it, what, what it is there in 1 John chapter 5. And what we've got to do is look elsewhere to see what that sin might be. And here we have a key to that in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verses 20 to 22. So let's have a read of that. For if after they have escaped, and this is talking about us, we're talking about believers, if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. So it's not talking about just a one-off lapse. It's talking about people who have gone back to that former way of life. For it's better for them, verse 21, to not have known the way of righteousness than after they've known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it has happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, the sow that was washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Now, you might be thankful that I spared you a graphic of the dog that returned to its own vomit, but I think the sow wallowing in its mire is a really graphic example of what Peter is talking about here. This is the unforgivable sin. The sow that was washed, which is using, it's a figure of us, the sow that was washed through the, through the cleansing work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but now doesn't want to stay clean. It wants to go back. It doesn't just get splashed by the mire. It doesn't accidentally stumble in it. It goes back and it lies down and it wallows in it because it enjoys it. That is what this is talking about. That is the unforgivable sin where a believer in Christ has deliberately turned their back on the Lord Jesus and his work of salvation and is wallowing in sin. The passage in Jude is also, so I hope that that's a helpful, you know, I, I really think that that gives great insight to what First John chapter 5 is really talking about. Uh, Jude chapter 12, we're not far away from it, uh, not chapter 12, Jude verse 12. Um, again, it goes, uh, it comes with a list of uh, uh, various behaviours uh, and it says, of the people that behave this way, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, I don't think we need to spend any time in that because it talks about them being raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. 
right? So it's not just a one-off lapse. It's a way of behaviour. It is a pattern of behaviour behavior whereby these people are like storm-tossed seas that create this foam, this undesirable foam as a result. And so that's what uh, Jude is talking about. Okay, we're almost there. We're working our way through these. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 24. Uh, let's turn back to it. We need to read it. So let's turn back to Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 24, and then we'll have a look at what Brother Roberts had to say there. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 24. But when the righteous turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? All his righteousness that he has done shall not be mentioned. In his trespass that he hath trespassed, and in his sin that he hath sinned, in them shall he die. So that's pretty strident language that Ezekiel uses there. But, of course, hopefully by this stage we're getting the sense that this is talking about a pattern of life, a pattern of behaviour, not a one-off uh, lapse or a weak moment in someone's life. And so Brother Roberts makes exactly that point. <coughs> Pardon me. This is neither more nor less than the apostolic doctrine that only that he that endures to the end shall be saved. And if any man walk after the flesh, he shall die. A man trusting the righteousness, and he uses an example here, righteousness is of 10 years, say, and then slackening off into loose and wicked ways will find at the judgment seat that the righteousness of the first part of his life is not reckoned, but has been cancelled by his lapse. But this is a different case from the case of a man ordering his life aright before God and having a slip of some kind which he deplores and prays forgiveness for and which he disowns and no longer follows. Ezekiel's words contemplate the case of a man once righteous turning away from his righteousness and doing according to all the abominations of the wicked. It is not the case of a rectified stumble. All right. Very quickly, the three examples in Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah, let's, we do need to turn to uh, chapter 7. So just come back a few chapters there to Jeremiah chapter 7. But Jeremiah is emphatically told that because the people of Judah and of Jerusalem were so wicked, in verse 16 of chapter 7, uh, God says to him, don't pray for this people. Therefore, pray not for this people, neither lift up cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession to me. I won't hear them. I won't hear you, I should say. I won't hear you, Jeremiah, if you pray for them. Wow. But what is he talking about here? Well, again, we need to have a look at the context. Why were they so unredeemable? Why would God not hear Jeremiah if he prayed for the people? Verse 9. This is the pattern of behaviour of the people in Jeremiah's time. Would you steal and murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and burn incense unto Baal and walk after other gods who you know not and come and stand before me in this house? And that actually, when you look through Jeremiah, they were actually doing those things in the house of God, not just that they were doing them outside. They were actually practising those things in the temple in Jerusalem and walk after and come and say, which is called by my name and say we are delivered to do all these abominations. That's why God wasn't prepared to hear them at that time because that was their practice. 
God was not going to forgive that behaviour. He would forgive them if they repented. How can I say that? Look back, same chapter, verse 3. Thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and I'll cause you to dwell in this place. Change your ways and I'll forgive you. But while of your ways are practising this abomination within my very city, within my very house, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, don't pray for them. I won't hear your prayer. They have to amend their ways. All right. That will do us with the Jeremiah references. We're running a little short on time. Let's have a look uh, finally at our uh, passages Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Let's come across to uh, Matthew chapter 12. This is what Brother Steve uh, referenced uh, in his exhortation from last week. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's referred to in Matthew 12 and Mark chapter 3. Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 12 first of all. Matthew chapter 12 and we see there in verse 31. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit shall not be forgiven. What does he mean by this? Well, let's have a look and um, see what Brother Walker had to say about this. I think um, uh, this um, will, will serve us very nicely. He says, again, uh, a letter to the editor, Brother Walker, when he was the um, editor of the Christadelphian, some super-sensitive souls have been distressed by a wrong construction of Christ's words in Matthew chapter 12 and verse well, 36. First of all, he goes on and says, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. His words here came out of an episode in which his enemies attributed his miracle to the healing of healing to Beelzebub, the prince of the devils, verse 24, and then also what we've read in verse 31. So this entire passage is quite troublesome, isn't it? But first of all, uh, he said, Brother Walker says, he met this monstrous argument by two considerations. Or first of all, he said, what, what was referred to, the idle word, that was what was spoken about in verse 24, that they attributed um, Christ's healing powers to Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. And that was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit uh, that is being referenced here. So we go on with the quotation. This was the idle word in question. He met this monstrous argument by two considerations. First, Satan would not and could not cast out Satan. And second, you yourselves cast out devils. By whom? I do it by the Spirit of God. And then he declared that this idle word was unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and was wickedly illogical because it was making a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. The, the objectors were, in fact, a generation of vipers and their evil hearts productive of only evil things. This indicates the character of the idle words that would not be pardoned in the day of judgment. Jesting and foolish talking that's spoken about in Ephesians 5 verse 4 are not convenient, and if God should mark iniquity, who should stand? But even this is not so offensive to God as the blasphemy which provoked the Lord's saying in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36. So do we see what he's saying there, brothers and sisters and young people? That the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit was these um, 
uh, these Pharisees were so hardened in their hearts that even with the plain sight of Jesus' healing with the power of God, they ascribed it to something evil. And while ever they maintained that attitude, they simply could not be forgiven. That was the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit that simply could not be forgiven. So unless we put ourselves alongside those people and we attribute God's uh, Christ's work to something that was evil, that was of the prince of the devils, we cannot commit that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So, and we could have spent a lot more time on that. What's the overarching message of the Bible? Well, we don't even have to go out of Matthew chapter 12 to see that it is forgiveness. We see there in verse 31, right in the middle of this argument about what might be unforgivable, it says in verse 31, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men unless we have so hardened ourselves that we would, with the Pharisees, with the scribes and the others, would attribute Christ's work to that of the prince of the devils. Now, let's, as we see on the screen there, the, the whole emphasis of the, of the teaching of Scripture is not about an unforgivable sin, because if it was, we'd find lots of examples of unforgivable sins in the Scripture, lots of people who'd, who'd, who'd committed that. But we don't find that. What we do find is lots of examples of forgiveness. All manner of sin can and shall be forgiven. Think about, again, before we get to Ahab and Manasseh, let's think again uh, briefly about David. He sinned, and he sinned very grievously. And it was possibly up to a year or so that he was wallowing, or no, what, no, don't, uh, I shouldn't use that term, but he was, he was mired down in, in that sin uh, and it so overcame him, he was so guilt-stricken that, for example, I, I, I suspect um, that Psalm 38, for example, was written as a description of how he felt at this time. Let me just, we don't have to turn back to that, but let me read you uh, a few um, snippets out of Psalm 38. He says, For mine iniquities have gone over my head. As a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. I'm feeble and sore broken. I've roared by reason of the disquietness of my heart. I was as a deaf, but I, as a deaf man heard not, I was as a dumb man that opened not his mouth. And, and, and so he goes on. He was absolutely guilt-stricken, but he wouldn't confess until he was confronted by Nathan the prophet and, a prophet. and we know what happened. As soon as he said, I have sinned against the Lord, he immediately received that assurance, the Lord hath also put away thy sin Thou shalt not die. So David was forgiven because he confessed his sin. Now think about also a couple of extreme uh, contrasts or examples, I should say, in the scripture. Think about a man like Ahab, one of the most wicked, of whom it was recorded, there was none like unto Ahab which did sell himself to work wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Now, if anyone had sinned an unforgivable sin, surely it was Ahab. 
but he found mercy when he repented at the word of Elijah. And Elijah is told, see how Ahab humbles himself before me. Because he humbles himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his day. So even Ahab could be forgiven. And the same could be said of Manasseh. What was the description of Manasseh? Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Israel to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. But even such a man was not beyond the grace of forgiveness because it says of Manasseh, when he was in affliction, he sought the Lord his God, he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed to him and he was entreated of him and heard his supplication. So even Ahab and Manasseh could be forgiven if they would turn again, if they would repent and if they would um, prostrate themselves in humility to their God. All sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of man. All sins, brothers and sisters and young people, that is not a meaningless phrase. So we've worked our way through all of those um, passages there and I hope that that rather comprehensive list is not as scary now as what it might have been an hour ago. A list that on face value would seem to imply that there is an unforgivable sin or a mortal sin as, uh, as the, the Roman Catholics would like to, um, uh, to describe it. But having worked through it, we've also seen that on each occasion it's referring not to an individual sin or failings that might render us outside the scope of God's salvation, but rather to a life that is dedicated to sin, that is aiming for sin, that's shooting for sin, a mind that shows no remorse for sin, a life where sin goes unchecked and unresisted, a life deliberately sinful. That's the unforgivable sin, the unforgivable life of sin. A believer who's recanted the following of Christ has denied Christ and is in a sense at the foot of, cost, foot of the cross casting abuse and mocking Jesus as he hung on that cross. Someone whose only regret about sin, like Esau, was getting caught out, not regretting the sin itself, but just sorry that he didn't get the reward. And we've seen also that the overarching, the overarching uh, message of the Bible is forgiveness. Just Look here, and we don't need, we're not going to spend any time on those, but you might like to um, make a note of them um, later on if there's no time now. All sins to be forgiven. Forgiveness, it, it, it goes right through the whole of the um, New Testament and the Old Testament. If we confess our sins, He is just and faithful to forgive us and to, for, to cleanse us. Hebrews 8. That, he, that I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities I'll remember no more. Ephesians 1, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins and grace. Psalm 86, verse 5, for thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. Isaiah 43, I will not remember thy sins. And we can multiply that list over and over again. What I'd like to do, brothers and sisters, now, if uh, Brother James is still uh, tuned in there, I would like us to conclude 
with a reading. This is a positive reading to conclude with, a reading from Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5, and then I'll literally make about 30 seconds worth of comment to uh, wrap it up. So, Brother James, to give my voice a rest, would you mind reading Psalm 32, verses 1 to 5 for me, please? Sure. A beautiful Psalm of David, Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom Yahweh imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto Yahweh, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Thanks, uh, thanks, Brother James. So beautiful little passage there, a nice positive uh, passage to finish off on. And, and what I want us to remember is that if God forgave David for lying, for murder and for adultery, he can and he will forgive us. If he forgave Ahab, he will forgive us. If he forgave Manasseh, one of the most sinful kings ever to reign, he will forgive us if we turn to him. Our final slide for tonight. This also was a, a comment that Brother Steve made uh, in the exhortation, that if you are worried, for people who are worried that they've committed the unforgivable sin, well, you haven't simply because you're worried about it. Because your life is not a life that is practising sin. It's not aiming for sin. And if you're worried that you have committed an unforgivable sin, you haven't because you are worrying about it. And I like this little cartoon. Um, uh, some of the younger ones might not uh, be familiar with it, but this is um, uh, the uh, characters from um, this Snoopy, and that's Charlie Brown and, and Linus, who is a, is a warrior. Linus uh, next to Charlie Brown there. He's uh, Lucy's uh, little brother, and he's a worrier. He worries about everything. And I like the caption, worrying won't stop the bad stuff from happening. It just stops you from enjoying the good. And so in the context of what we're talking about tonight, the bad stuff might be the unforgivable sin. But as we've seen, we can't be, um, we're not in that process. We're not pursuing sin, and we are not committing an unforgivable sin, although we might fail time and time again. But the good that we have to concentrate on and brighten up rather than uh, look despondent like Charlie Brown and uh, Linus is to have full trust and confidence in God's grace who will make up the shortfall for us. And so I hope, brothers and sisters and young people, that that's been a helpful look, a fairly comprehensive one. I'm, I'm sorry if it went a little longer than um, ideal, but... Um, uh, of course, we don't have much travel time uh, uh, that we have to worry about this evening. Um, but hopefully that might have given comfort to some who might have otherwise been really worrying, have I committed an unforgivable sin? The answer is no. Thank you very much.